Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another podcast episode, Healthy Love and Money. Today, I have Barbara with me, and Barbara is an amazing woman. I had the chance to meet her just over a month ago at FinCon, and FinCon, if you don't know, is a bunch of financial nerds getting together, talking about money and how to help people with their relationship with money. And what's so special about Barbara is that she's worked in the service industry in all kinds of different capacities. And so she has a unique lens on how people earn and spend money and what that's like. And so I said, Barbara, you got to come on my show about healthy love and money. And we got to talk about people and money and relationships. And she's like, uh, okay, let's do it. So she's also an author of a new book called Tipped. And I know there's a subtitle. I'm probably missing. So I'm going to let you fill that in. But Barbara, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. The title of the book is Tipped. And the subtitle is The Life-Changing Guide to Financial Freedom for Waitresses, Bartenders, Strippers, and All Other Service Industry Professionals. It is a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. And, you know, so listeners know that Barbara is comfortable to go there and she's seen a wide swath of industry because you said waiters, bartenders, strippers, and other service professionals. And so what we're going to do today is really try to unpack what does that mean? Who is this group of people? Barbara, you represent in some ways this group of servers and your experience and seeing their relationship with money. So we're going to dive deep and and talk about it because whether you've ever worked in the service industry or you've been served by the service industry, this is something that's so important to understand. And we were talking just before the show started, kind of making sure that servers of all colors have their humanity and dignity and that that's so important and that they, they get seen in a healthy, vibrant way. Yeah. That's one of the bigger missions for me is just to make sure that there is no shame as you know, that's associated with how people earn their money. My focus is working with people who earn a tip, either partially or solely tip-based income, right? So there's unique struggles and opportunities for people who earn tips as their primary income. Um, And then there's also unique hazards for those people as well. But a big part of the mission is sometimes those people don't feel as though their money or their careers are real. And so my goal was to work with people, change the industry from within, and also change the shame and stigma that's associated with tipped work, right? People are often saying, oh, when are you going to get a real job or what's your other job? And so um, a big part of shining a light on the, the, the financial side of this is that people have real money and that real money can build real wealth. And when people start to see that that money can build real wealth, they'll start to take these industries and this, these professions more seriously. That emphasis on the word real is just so striking to me. Many of the people in the service industry would say they don't feel like they have real money. Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes in as, as dollars and $5 and sometimes as change and it comes in as cash 
whereas most of the world today sees their income in the form of a direct deposit that has taxes withheld, that has benefits attached to it, whereas, you know, tipped income earners don't have that same setup. Majority of tipped earners are living on $2.13 an hour. Majority of tipped earners don't have a 401k. They don't have health insurance. They don't have paid time off. They don't have human resources. Paid time off is one of my favorite ones to talk about because the average employee in America gets 20 paid days off a year, including holidays. So it's like a week of vacation, five sick days, five PTO, and then and then holidays. That's That's a working month. How much better, how much healthier, happier of a human being would you be if you had a month of paid leave? And this group of people, which is not small, there's over 4 million people who work solely or partially on a tip-based income in the country. That <laughs> That's living, a lot of people. It's a lot yeah. of people. And it's probably a lot of your listeners that are living without these benefits. And so, yeah, talking about the fact that their their positions are real, despite the fact that they, they aren't given these benefits, but they, they have the opportunity to set them up for themselves. So my book goes into how they can set up those benefit systems themselves and how they can start to view their careers and their money as real and build real wealth. Yeah, I think that that's such an important transition. And no matter where you're at in the economic system, if you feel like your money is not real, it's going to be hard to put in place healthy money practices. And so part of the gift you're giving to the serving community is saying like, no, you're making real money. Here's how you live. Like you feel like you're a full part of the economic system, not some outsider just kind of hanging on. Is that what we're getting after? Yeah. And I think, you know, your intersection where you meet with money and relationships is super interesting to me. And it's not something I talk a lot about in the book. The only time I touch on relationships is when I say that oftentimes people in the, in the service industry tend to date or be in relationships with people in the service industry as well. And that that can be hazardous because there's no income diversity. Like we Mm. saw during COVID, you know, if two people in the same restaurant lost their job because of a restaurant shutdown, your household income is not very diverse. And so there, you know, that can be, that can be hazardous. Um, And so that's something you have to go in knowing the risk of that whether or not you can provide a little more income diversity, whether you date somebody at a different establishment or completely outside of the industry, which is, you know, preferred, but often hard also because of the fact that people in the service industry have such unique hours and such unique setups as far as their employment goes. So a lot of people in the service industry, from your perspective, end up meeting other people at the same location they're working at, and they're not necessarily thinking about income risk diversity. Like You said a little more eloquently than me, but as soon as you said, I was like, well, of course, that's so obvious. Like, you know, from an investment perspective, you don't want two incomes from the same place. But I wasn't thinking about that. But yeah, if you're both waiting tables or what are those other contexts where people are... And that's the first one I go to that's most natural. But where Yeah, there's over two million servers and wait staff in the in the country. So I think that's where most people's heads go to when they and they're and they're often the ones without the most safety nets in place, right? So yeah. the other thing that servers, you know, may lack is that benefit of social security, unemployment income, right? Because a lot of times in the service industry people aren't don't know how important it is to claim their income and to claim their tips. Um, so yes, because make that, so make that link for everyone. (laughs) Why do they need to claim that they need to claim their income? Because 
unemployment and social security are tied. They're partial, partial based replacement income replacement benefits. And so if you're not claiming your income, then that benefit is not available to you. And so, so then they get a double whammy when they hit mm -hmm. 60, if they've worked service industry their whole career, they've not banked social security. And if they've not done any retirement savings, they literally have nothing. They age into the most economically disadvantaged population in the U.S. Every every safety net that we've set up as a society still allows them to fall through the through the cracks. Now, and I know in your book when I read it, because I mean, part of why I was so excited to have you on is you gave me a copy of your book. I went back to my room. I think the next day I read through a good chunk of it pretty quickly, and you talked about the his, history of being tipped. And that kind of like blew my mind too. So would you lay a little bit of that out? So we're seeing a bigger context because yeah, it's super problematic, right? The history of tipping came about post slavery. So when slaves were freed, right? Um, employers found this tipping loophole as a way to continue to make money off of their black, brown, uneducated minority, you know, employees so most people who were freed went into either restaurants or railroads. Railroads were a tipped uh, employment type of work at that time. They eventually did a strike and they got their benefits and, and things like that. But today, that's, that's still how tipping came about was on the back of slavery. Well, uh, so I don't know. Maybe it's of course, but. So why would there be any social benefits tied with that, you know, just in the I'm not saying that's the right position, but that, you know, is just kind of the way things go. Yeah. And I'm, it's not as though the people who own restaurants and own bars and own clubs today are practicing with that in mind, right? <laughs> right, they, right, right. Those are incredibly difficult businesses to run. There's slim margins, right? Like it's yeah. hard to run those businesses. And if you had to pay for HR and all of the other benefits, right? Like, would these be viable businesses? I, possibly, potentially. Large restaurant mm. groups do do that, but then they also right. have a different financial system than most of the mom and pop shops that are started and are operating today. So it's an interesting conversation. You know, this is that complexity of, you know, in financial therapy, we're often working on people's individual relationship with money but very quickly we come up with the larger systemic realities of money mm -hmm. and there is this complex relationship back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, you also talk about in your book to some degree for a large number of servers, uh, drugs and alcohol can become a big part of the overall lifestyle. And that has a huge impact on kind of their financial wherewithal and what's going on. So can you talk a little bit about what you see there and that kind of intersection of, does it slide over into addiction typically or is it? Yeah, I tread, I tread cautiously here just because not everyone who works in the service industry is partaking right. in drugs and alcohol, right? Right, um, right. But it becomes, it's, it's, an, it's an industry where it is, alcohol is a large part of the focus of how you make your money when you're at a bar and at a club and sometimes in certain restaurants as well. And so because of that focus, as somebody who becomes the ultimate salesperson, you also become a really good consumer as well. So when right. you are creating these perfectly crafted cocktails, sometimes you just want to go out and have somebody create a nice cocktail for you. And so uh. the industry tends to be surrounding alcohol and surrounding those environments. And so 
as a way to relax, you often go to those establishments as well, whether you're friends and coworkers at other establishments or, you know, you are getting to roll up to your bar post shift and have a free drink on the house as a benefit to your place of employment, right? Like there's, there's a lot of ways that that, that looks, but yes, alcohol and drugs end up being a big part of the industry. And the way that that impacts your money is twofold, right? One, the direct impact where it's like Mm -hmm. you are spending part of the money that you made to come to work on alcohol. I call it the cost of winding down in my book. Um, right. But then there's this, there's the secondary and tertiary, you know, impacts where it's that it reduces your ability to make good decisions. So that could mean that instead of, you know, taking the subway home, you're taking a taxi and spending more money, right? It, it, uh-huh. it could mean that you are hitting buy on some purchases that you otherwise wouldn't when you're, when you're at home. It could mean that you are getting takeout delivered instead of cooking, right? When you're under the influence, the influence. <laughs> it's yes, a lot easier to make decisions that are more beneficial to you in the immediate moment than to be thinking about (laughs) your budget. Oh no, I blew my dining out budget. You know, you're not thinking about that. So it has a lot of impacts. And so we're talking about how, if we are drinking and we're in the service industry and we, I'm kind of in front, you've spent the whole day, the whole night taking care of others and now you're exhausted and you just want to be taken care of. So you do the Uber instead of the train home and you order in food instead of preparing something at the house. And then maybe you're scrolling Amazon to unwind and you click buy, buy, mm-hmm. buy. And now you've just spent a lot more of your money. And so like for all, for most of us as humans, we have to practice some self restraint in order to get where we want to go financially. But if we're in the service industry, and I, I think this is very true for caretakers in general, whether it's in the service industry or, you know, there's other fields where they feel like all I do is take care of others. When do I, when am I going to take care of myself? And they use money as kind of that way to take care of themselves um, through more drugs and alcohol, through sex, through shopping. Those are kind of the big ones, at least yep. in, in my mind. And maybe, you know, another one, but. Um, and this industry is unique in that a lot of times we are making money off of those vices as well. Right. So a lot of the work I do, you know, that is in the service industry is around alcohol and sometimes drugs. And then Uh also sometimes in sex as well, right. There's a big umbrella that the service industry covers and that includes sex workers who earn tips as well. And so sex, drugs, alcohol, those are all things that fall under, you know, that, that getting taken care of umbrella and that you spend money to get those services and to feel taken care of in those, in those ways. And so it's interesting because you are not only selling that, but you are also consuming it. So you may not feel that you're being irresponsible because that's a part of your world, right? Uh Like that is a part of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Anytime you see people unwinding, in the presence of either alcohol, drugs, or sex, right? Whenever you see people who are relaxing, who are being, you know, being enjoying themselves, it's in the presence of those things. And because of your environment and because of the way that you're exposed to all of this, that's, that's, you're, you're taking that on, right? You're, Mm. you're sort of realizing or, you know, unconsciously taking that on and saying like, Oh, that's what I need to be doing when I need to be relaxing. And I guess as we're kind of talking about this, it then starts to miss some of the other less stimulus, strong 
experiences. I'm thinking, you know, like taking a walk in the park or having a conversation with a close friend or journaling or reading a book, right? That those are, I think some people would say, well, those are all healthier or more adaptive. And this is really interesting. We start to run into some moral quandaries too with some of this stuff. And I think you have some interesting views on that. Could you share a little bit about kind of, especially before the show started, we were starting to talk about the role of shame and how that all shows up. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. So I don't like when anyone feels shame about how they earn money. How you earn money is just a fact and a part of your life. You should never feel shame about what you do for your living. Um, Now, where shame does come into play is when people may spend money on those services. And so you sort of need to separate out, are you feeling that shame because it's not in line with your values? Are you feeling that shame because it's not in line with what your future goals are? And knowing where that comes from, it'll help you parse out maybe your decision making. I, To me, all of this is why systems are so important, especially for caretakers and people in the service industry. You set up those systems because people in the nine to five world already have those systems set up in place. I always right. use this analogy, like when I would go to the bar, I didn't realize that I was spending everything I had, whereas everyone else was spending what they had left over. And it was a huge distinction for me when I sort of was like, oh, aha, like these people have systems in place already, right? Mm. When the money runs out for fun, they're just done with their money for the fun, right? Right. All of their money is still going into other systems. They still have all of these financial safety nets. They have automated savings. They have they have these paid time <laughs> off days waiting for them. They have their health insurance set up and ready to go. Whereas people who are working on tip based income, you know, if they don't have those systems in place, then they're having to make those decisions each and every day. Like, do I spend this on the things that I would enjoy right now, or do I make the hardest decision of all and just just go for a walk, which you used as an example as like a a healthier outlet, you're in an environment where that is not something anyone else is doing. Environment (laughs) is so important to how we make our decisions. And no one is just like, you know what? I'm going to step outside the club and go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) They would laugh at me. Yeah, that's so nice. Yeah, I remember trying to bring like a brown bag lunch because I was like, oh, everything at this club is fried. All of the food is fried. Uh And, you you know, it's hard to feel like you're doing hot girl shit when you roll in with your little brown bag lunch because you're (laughs) trying to save money and be healthy. But (laughs) And stay hot. And stay hot, yeah. I mean, because fried chicken doesn't lead to hotness. I don't, at least, I don't know. It it can, but it it wasn't what I was going for at the time. Right. (laughs) But that also goes back to relationships and how, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's not in the industry, then they might be able to provide you that sort of exposure of like, oh, you know, maybe go for a walk or we'll go for a walk when you get home, right? Like you are, they say you are the the five people you spend the most time with. If you're those, if the five people you are spending the most time with are people who are just in clubs all of the time, then you're not probably going to be going for a walk. So does that then for some people in that, that awareness realize like, I've got to change my life. I've got to get out of that. Or what happens, you know, that honoring the right to work in whatever way you want to work. And at the same time, recognizing that our environment does shape our, our life quality and outcome. And 
I think I'm treading lightly because, you know, I don't want to be overly presumptive that like, well, this is the bad way to live. So you need to leave that. Yeah, I think that that's super dangerous in two ways. One, we can't take the people who are closest to bettering the system and tell them once they get a level of awareness that they need to leave that industry right? You are the people who are the closest to making change and impact and you should just get out, right? We're, we're robbing everyone else of that opportunity as well. So I don't have any skin in the game as to whether people stay in the industry or go in the industry. I coach people on ways to get in the industry and I coach people on how to get out of the industry. It really depends on where you are personally, what boundaries you've put in place, how it's working and showing up for you in your life. But mm. it, if you're not seeing anyone else in your club, in your bar, in your restaurant, making those choices, then you have to be the leader and start setting that example. And it's challenging, but getting that level of awareness where you set awareness about your environment, right? That's step number one. Once you're aware of the fact that your environment is sabotaging you, you don't necessarily need to leave the environment, but you are then able to make changes within the environment. And that's when real change can happen. When you realize that you don't need to be subject to your environment's whims, you can understand and be aware of it and then start to, to make shifts. Yeah, I think the, the fun psychological word that typically gets planted in here is internal locus of control versus yeah. external locus of control, right? I really appreciate what you said, Barbara. I was like, well, you may not be a therapist, licensed therapist, but you know, I'm also learning like, Hey, it doesn't take being a therapist to be unconditional and accepting of wherever people are at. Like that's not unique to therapists, a little humble, like humbling moment. Just remember, like it's not just therapists have a lock on that. But what I, I heard you describe Barbara that was so beautiful is like, look, I meet people at the service industry intersection, whether they're trying to go in or come out and I give them a safe place to look at how is this working for you? What's working, what's not working, and we can look at all of it. And then yeah. you get and then you make a decision about what's gonna be right for you. Am I understanding that that's kind of your approach to working with folks in the service industry? Yeah, so I have a, a coaching practice and that is definitely my approach. Shame is I say shame is not welcome at your personal finance party in any way. Whether it's, you know, budgeting for those illicit substances, whether it's, you know, having conversations about the type of people that get to stay or leave your your even your personal relationships, right? In the industry, especially if you're working at the bar or the club environment, or even if you're in sex work, there can be a lot of jealousy that can be a part of your relationships that might not be working for you. There can be enabling. There's a lot of things that come into the the relationship dynamics, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. Yes, <laughs> I, don't, yes, I don't get to talk, yeah. talk about those things very much, yes, but yes. it's unique to the service industry in some ways where it's, it's, it's ever prevalent, right? Jealousy is a huge part of working in these jobs, whether it's, you know, your partner coming in or one of your partners coming in and seeing maybe a flirtatious encounter or, you know, misinterpreting something or seeing somebody on social media or, you know, even just having, you know, if you have a client who's a regular, who's showing up and showing a lot more interest in a way that may be closer to a relationship than your partner or partners would care for that, you know? So. Yeah. The human, the human condition doesn't leave us no matter where we're operating and jealousy and is part of, all of our human experience, but I'm thinking as you're describing it, I didn't think about in the service industry where there's a much closer one-to-one on like, if I'm providing service for this person, my tip is conditional on that. 
And then you talked about having that regular who now maybe is starting to spend money or somewhere else, but that's your, your girlfriend or your good friend. And now you feel betrayed. Yeah. Or even just a regular who's starting to spend a lot of money and maybe feeling like the, the lines are getting blurred on whether or not this is more of a relationship, right. Um, Mm. than, than a client and, you know, a guest patron dynamic should be and whether or not your partner or potential partner would be getting jealous in those situations. Right. Especially in, in, in sex work, you can, there's, there's a lot of conversations surrounding whether it's okay to be in monogamous relationships because of the fact that you are, you know, within this, this scope of work. Right. And yeah, everyone has to set their own relationship boundaries and, and guidelines, but it's definitely a, a prevalent com- conversation. In, so you, in, you're saying the sex worker is having conversations with their intimate partner about whether they get to have a monogamous, monogamous relationship given while the, they're exactly. given the fact that they're having sex with multiple other people as Clients. a guest patron client. And right. so they, in their mind, it sets up a, this is a d- different type of relationship than the intimate relationship that I have with you. That's romantic, not client. Right. Yeah. So teaching or even having those conversations with your partners about what it looks like to incorporate a monogamous relationship, given the dynamics of of your work. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Yeah. So teaching or even having those conversations with your partners about what it looks like to incorporate a monogamous relationship, given the dynamics of, of your work. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, at least from my angle, I'm thinking often about emotional intimacy as well. And I think it almost felt like you were alluding to that a little bit too, in the work is when is it that I'm feeling more of this, emotional bond, intimate bond towards you. And it's no longer, I'm just, I'm, it's no longer I'm paying for a service. It's, it's moving into, I think what we call an intimate relationship versus a professional relationship. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, we were talking about this before we started recording, but oftentimes people in the industry meet their significant others, their partners in their jobs, in their roles. I mean, one of the great parts of working mm. in the service industry is the social aspect, right? You get a lot of socialization. There's a lot of opportunity for networking. There's a lot of opportunity to meet people. And so with that, you are meeting a lot of potential <laughs> partners. And, you know, we were talking about the fact that there's, if, let's say you're bartending or you're serving and somebody, you know, you have that group of people that come in and, you know, people are flirting with you. People are asking you for your number. And so the, that's just ever present in the industry as well. It doesn't really matter whether you're serving, you're bartending, you're stripping, you're doing sex. Like it doesn't matter where on the spectrum of the industry you're at. Those dynamics are always present. And so it really does 
you have to be very thoughtful about what are my boundaries and limits here. And especially if I'm in an intimate partnership with someone else. And then I think part of what you're introducing is for many servers, they also meet their intimate partners initially in a professional way, serving them in a professional capacity. Yeah. But then the relationship will evolve into more of a private intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head when you said boundaries, right? A a huge part of, being successful in these roles is identifying your boundaries, setting them in place before, you know, or, or learning them as you go and getting really strong and good at them. So it's a big part of the work is knowing your boundaries. Because I would imagine at some level, part of your income is being able to be flirtatious and more socially friendly than you might even normally be in your private life. But people, depending on who you're working with, that like is engaging. I always make this joke that, you know, 95% of sex work is listening, right? Like majority of (laughs) service industry jobs, whether you're a server or your sex work, wherever you fall in that 95% of it's listening and paying attention. Um, and so that's really, you know, not to steal your job, but no, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, uh, I mean, maybe we need to have this conversation live on the podcast, but I think we could have, I could probably learn a lot from you about what you've heard, because even though I'm a, you know, I'm a paid listener, mm. really at the end of the day, people are paying t- to have me listen to them and to hear them deeply and more deeply than anybody else in their life. Mm-hmm. And they're expecting that there's some psychological knowledge and understanding that's behind that deep listening that will offer the right question or the right observation at the right time that will help them move forward. But at the end of the day, people are paying me money to listen to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And in an emotionally intimate way. So like I have to, and we get trained on transfer, what's called transference and countertransference around sexuality because therapists are not supposed to cross the sexual boundary line and when they do, it's known to be catastrophic. Yeah, I actually talk about that in my book. I talk about transference because it's it's very similar in that you are listening, you are providing a service, you're providing community comfort. You may be the only smile that somebody gets in a day. You may be the only bit of joy, niceness that someone receives in their day. And so there is a lot of, right, that the things that you are providing a service for are also things that people look for in successful relationships, right? That listening, that caring, that, hey, let me get you a beverage. Like, how was your day? What are the, you know? And so it's very common in this industry as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were saying, and, and there's probably, I, I would ask you to summarize, even though I know there's probably a whole book on this. <laughs> as you've listened to clients in, whether it's in your sex work or serving world, what are some of those big themes that you've seen people struggling with that they're confiding in you? I mean, I think that people in the service industry are used to being told people's innermost thoughts and secrets, right? Like yeah. you, it's a safe place. And in a lot of ways, people assume that that's part of the job that you're just going to receive this, hear these secrets and keep them safe. And and they are, they're, they're, Pretty true. Yeah. I can't think of somebody's secret that I've ever, you know, told anybody. Right. <laughs> and so right. I think that in some ways, this is a low cost, low barrier for entry sort of therapy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> going to a bar, going to a club, going to, you know, uh-huh. logging onto OnlyFans, 
you know, whatever, whatever medium you're, you're using, I think it's, I think it's a version of finding community. It's a version of finding somebody else in this great big world to, to connect with. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we share in that way, the fundamental human need for connection and belonging and feeling seen and heard and taken care of those, those do not leave us anywhere along the whole arc of our life. And I think, there's a number of, I know my clients that deny that they have those needs <laughs> and then they, it slips out sideways. And, you know, sometimes it does mean they're having an affair partner or seeing a sex worker. And I think that's where you were interestingly brought to my attention. Like if there's shame in the relationship, it's more about that person knows that they're violating their own relational rules. It's not the, the it's sex not worker. The or yeah. str- it's, it's, it's not the engaging with a sex worker that is, that is, shame ridden or should be shameful, right? It's, it's the, the person who is maybe not a living according to their values or to their relational code or to their, you know, whatever in their life that they decided that they wanted to, to execute. That's where they're getting their shame from. Um, and to me, that's always important to hit on. Yeah. Because that's it. That's where it's the violation of the relational fidelity, right? Mm, And you put it beautifully. Yeah. So most marriages that I'm working with, the, Many, and that's what I'm learning is this is not true for all marriages, but for many marriages, there's an expectation of monogamy and where that line of monogamy falls can vary some, right? Emotional monogamy is very important for a lot of couples, a lot more than I realized. And I feel feel like you're being too emotionally close with someone of the opposite sex that that's a real problem for me. And then, you know, every degree unto full intercourse and multiple partners, right? And that, but that's when you, when you know that that's the expectation, but then you're acting outside of that, that's where for most people, shame starts to come into play. Yeah. When you're not being honest in relationships that you've established that you will be honest. Right. Right. Whereas, you know, the stripper is being honest in their relation, at least as they're doing stripping, they're not hiding what they're trying to do. Nope. I'm here to entertain you with my body and my dancing and. Right. And a lot of chosen to come here. And a lot of time they take on that shame. And so that's a lot of the work that, you know, Mm. in this industry that you have to do to protect yourself from your, from your clients is putting those boundaries in place and working on maybe things like mantras or identity statements or other things that you can do to build up your armor so that you don't take on that shame. Because if, if it is truly a chosen position for you to be a stripper just picking on that one particular place Mm -hmm. and you're choosing that out of your own free will then it's the patron's responsibility to that they're making a free will choice to be there too right they're entering it's a social contract right you're entering the place knowing exactly what services are being provided what the expectations are between you and you know the the establishment and it's you walk in knowing those things yeah, the, the, there's no, this is no bait and switch kind of deal. <laughs> I haven't heard of any of those, those yeah. situations, right? <laughs> yes, right, right. And I imagine you would know of them if, if they were there. Probably. Yeah. I've, I've worked in a lot of places. I've worked in six or seven different states and every environment imaginable. I, I have been in restaurants and clubs and I've done private entertainment. I, I feel like I've done a lot of it. So I've come across a lot. 
the very nerdy scientific side of me is you have a representative sample. I, that's a wonderful <laughs> way to put that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> my my uh, inner scientific nerd is coming out. I apologize. Uh, so as we, there's Barbara, there's, this has been such a delight. And your humility and transparency talking about things that I think polite company doesn't talk about yeah. is greatly appreciated, right? Like we're all humans. We're in this together. We're trying to figure it out. Yeah. Mutual respect of, and I, I know since having read your book, it, I just, I was telling you before we got on the show, I've been traveling more. And so I've been much more aware of like how many people I interact with that are making a living counting on my tips. Mm-hmm. And it honestly, it's had an impact where I tip like more than I had been in the past. I, I don't think I was stingy, but I know like, I was like, let me just tip a little bit more because I know this matters. And I, think I heard maybe, your episode about going to the Olive Garden and upping it from 20 to 25%. I think that's, that's awesome. <laughs> And I think it's it's the right time for those considerations to be made, right? COVID was was hard. The wealth gap is getting bigger. Inflation is having a huge impact, right? I think everyone should have a personal tipping policy. You were saying that about their their finances, you know, and I think that it's a great time for people who do have that sort of like this is this is how I interact in the service industry. This is my tipping policy to kind of maybe take a look and say, do I want to up that considering the place in the world and the time that we're in? Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, outside of, so I'm going to plug your book again, tipped. Should people start carrying copies of your book tipped and give them out to their favorite servers? Would that like be, would that be weird to do? No, I think that's phenomenal. I think everyone should order a copy, order 10, have them each time you go out to a restaurant. If you care about, you know, financial literacy, please get this into the hands of anyone you know who's who's working for tips because I think there's a lot of information in there. And I think this conversation is so important because I don't have all the answers, right? Like I've I've been in one I met my my wife while I was dancing at a club and uh-huh. we went through a lot of growing pains trying to work out what that looks like for us and I think that you know one I mirror a really healthy relationship now but I think a lot of people need to talk about what a healthy relationship in the industry looks like and what's, what's potentially out there just because it's been a struggle or it's been hard. Doesn't mean it has to be that way. Right. I imagine that's a big narrative and knowing the serving industry probably has to be dealt with and probably in society relationships are hard and relationships are hard. Then what it would be nice to hear is more people saying relationships are satisfying. Relationships are satisfying. When they're healthy, they can be very, very satisfying. That doesn't mean that they don't have hard moments, but the goal is to be satisfying. And so I think, Barbara, the you're... Same thing as money, right? You know, absolutely. money is hard. Go, go, getting through our money narratives, working all of that out. It's, it's hard stuff. But once you do, it's really rewarding. Oh, simpatico. Perfectly simpatico. And, you know, I think we, I want to highlight that just upping your tip is probably not enough. So if you're bold enough and you're that type of person, grab some copies of Barbara's book tip, because that's where more of the systemic change and the knowledge and awareness opens up. Yeah. Most people don't know that they need this, this information. And so it's, it's going to be an uphill battle for me to get it in people's hands, but I'm up to the challenge. Well, I'm happy to lock arms with you and climb the mountain of financial literacy and financial empowerment. Barbara, it's been such a pleasure. If people wanted to connect with you and your work, what's the best way for them to find you? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, I always forget to to plug this. 
So yeah, buy my book. Um, if you are interested in um, reaching out to me or connecting somebody with me, I do offer financial coaching. That's www.tippedfinance.com. Also, you can follow me on the socials. I'm mostly on Instagram at Tipped Finance. I like to make memes and I like to make personal finance really approachable and service industry related memes are my are my way to, to do that. And I'm just started on TikTok. So Find me there struggling. Be one of her first followers <laughs> on TikTok. And um, I will, ending on this, Barbara, that was one of the things that I really liked about your book. It was very clear that you have worked in the industry and you could make the analogies of service industry jargon and language to money. And I think that that's really powerful when you can speak someone's native language and help them understand, here's the native language to this money concept. You did that so brilliantly. So congratulations on a, a tr- tremendous book. And we'll have show notes so people can link to all this stuff if you didn't catch it as, as we're blurring through it all. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have Absolutely. Absolutely. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at Money.